everybody always talks about Aristotle as, uh, you know, this sort of proto-scientific observer guy, but a lot of the time he's not observing things. For instance, his passage on how only hedgehogs and humans have sex face to face because hedgehogs would stab <laughs> each other to death. That shit's just made up. That's not how hedgehogs have sex. <laughs> he just made it up. He's a confabulist. Becoming Egyptian. So welcome to uh, episode 11 now of Becoming Egyptian. I'm joined again, disappointingly, by my co-host. We can't seem to get rid of each other. So, but yeah, today we have this far. easily our most esteemed guest thus far. Um, his name is Anderson Todd. For people in my social circles back home in New Zealand, he needs no introduction. Um, quite a superstar in our circles. And I think Session has slowly, because of my influence, gotten into this world lately. And, yeah, um, at the red pill. <laughs> Don't say that, man. Come on. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. I've, I guess. First of all, welcome, Anderson. How are you doing? How is everything? I'm good. Uh, Sid, Sachin, nice to meet both of you. Uh, and I got to say, I, I've never had a pill associated with me, but if I do have to have a pill associated with me, I would like one of those sort of galaxy paisley psychedelic pills uh, mm. rather than just one color, if we can arrange it. Um, but, yeah, uh, yeah well, I'm good. It's, uh, it's good you're, to be you're on. You're the alchemist, Thanks, right? <laughs> you're the alchemist. You can arrange it. Yeah, uh, we're, we're we're working on things, working on things over here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, in general, I guess on becoming Egyptian, we try to speak about things uh, to do with ideas surrounding meaning in modern life, the different ways that shows up. So, I guess invariably we tend to float in and around uh, topics such as history, uh, religion, culture. Everything sort of comes up, and, it, and also at the same time, we get nothing done and we talk about nothing as well. Oh, um, fantastic. That's that's where I live, so we're good. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Um, but yeah, if you want to just uh, give give an introduction of yourself, Anderson, your credentials, because I don't want to you know misrepresent sure. you. So just a bit of background. No, it's okay. Uh, so the the bio spiel. So uh, uh, hello, everybody who's not within uh, your elect New Zealand circle, who apparently know who I am. Uh, I'm Anderson Todd. That's uh, Anderson is my first name, like Anderson Cooper or Anderson Silva. Uh, depending on if you're more into CNN or UFC. Um, my uh, background, I'm uh, an assistant uh, professor in the teaching stream at U of T, um, where I've taught in the cognitive science department, the Buddhist psychology and mental health department, uh, and also I teach the interdisciplinary courses in Jungian theory at New College. Uh, in addition to that, I'm a uh, private practice uh, psychotherapist, so I see clients domestically, virtually, internationally um, in that. Uh, and in addition, um, you know, I uh, do research. I'm a writer. Um, I have a fairly deep background in uh, role-playing games, which weirdly has come to uh, impact on sort of every aspect of my career uh, somewhat unexpectedly. So, yeah, I'm coming at things from a pretty broad background. But if I had to tile that stuff together, I'd say I'm um, my work primarily orbits around the conscious and the unconscious and uh, sort of the theory and practice of intentional self-transformation. So that's kind of where my academic work localizes between Jung, Buddhism, and cognitive science. And uh, it's, of course, certainly where my, my work localizes as a psychotherapist. So yeah, that's me. And I'm interested in, I mean, you sort of reeled off a bunch of uh, 
history, et cetera, from the Dewey Decimal System. I'm extremely multidisciplinary, so I like playing yeah. that game. Yeah, a polymath if there ever was one, right? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I think polymath maybe implies mastery. Let's say I'm a polydabbler. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, certainly I find sort of everything interesting. Uh, and yeah. shocker, it ties together. So, yeah, glorified toddler. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that yeah. is um, that's actually a realization I had recently as well. Not to toot my own horn, but the fact that everything literally ties in together from quantum this and Buddhism that, and it's like, what the hell is going on? And once you sort of get I guess um, far enough in any one discipline, you can sort of translate the skills or concepts over completely like a 180 shift. And yet you find the same um, principles and axioms come up in completely wildly different topics. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, since I suppose it, you know, it was a, a pretty arbitrary artificial set of divisions that we put between subjects to begin with. So mm -hmm. finding that they happen to be tied together uh, and also that we live in a single world or maybe, um, uh, you know, does does kind of follow. But, yeah, I agree. There's a lot of benefit to abstracting general principles out of disciplines and then applying them cross discipline. And that's, you know, as, a, as an interdisciplinary, uh, you know, researcher and an interdisciplinary teacher, um, a big part of what I'm doing is sort of. Okay, let's let's scuff out some of these boundaries and see how uh, approaching things in a more convergent way from multiple subjects might actually shed some light on some of this mm. stuff, which is also great because it takes you into territory that normally uh, academia is a little bit uh, you know, a little bit wary of. Um, so that's where the good stuff is a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did um, I did have some loose sort of a skeleton of topics I wanted to cover, but Sachin, did you want to add anything before we sort of start into that? No, that was a sound introduction. I'm, 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 I'm Sid's much more well-versed in the realm of Anderson Todd than I am, but I've recently beginning it into it. I've been, I've opened up your alchemy series on YouTube, but I haven't <laughs> I had the chance to go all the way through it yet, but I will do that. But I'm going to take this as my very own lecture for the first time because we've got, yeah very very yeah. smart person on the other end that, so that's good that flagship alchemy lecture i first off i did not expect that the four hour uh <laughs> lecture would end up being the, the flagship the four hour yeah. lecture in fact uh, yeah i got to the yeah. end and said this needs a part two no wait it needs a part two <laughs> and a part three no wait each of those has to be four hours at least wait a second i think maybe i'm dealing with a series which is uh in fact what i've been sort of slowly pulling together uh, yeah. to mm. answer that. So hopefully at some point that rolls out, but we'll see what we can do today. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's always a good time when you get to the end of something and you realize it was just an introduction. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> unless you were trying to finish it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And but, it's not good. Yeah. But I always figure like a good conversation, the best conversations are the ones that end with, you know, a uh, hundred highly fascinating topics still on the table that you haven't gotten to. That's that's what you want. The affordance to move into future conversations. So um, I have no complaints about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. also like a um, way to know that what you're doing, your sort of research into that topic is genuine, right? Because you, by the end of it, your known unknown just magnifies entirely. It's like, oh, shit, now there's a thousand more things I could be doing that I'm pulled towards because I'm a toddler. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> God, if you keep saying toddler, somebody is going to hit you on this as a nickname, and then I'm going to have yeah. to deal with that. But um, uh, yeah, um, I mean, 
if, if you want to go the Socratic, I only know that I do not know route, there's no shortage of opportunities to not know things. So uh, being able to expand out into a sense of uh, mystery, I find, is generally quite, you know, productive. Yeah. Okay, well, on that note, I was thinking let's start um, with a like sort of overview and then zero in slowly. So just to get a bit of a lay of the land, we have to sort of go through politics. Unfortunately, this is something I find that um, no matter what kind of discussion you're having, the portal in and out of it is the culture wars. Um, mm. It's, I guess it's in a way religious, in a way it's the opposite of religion. I'm not sure. It could be both. It could be neither. Um, but yeah, well, I guess what we find common problems in, you know, 2010s onwards, we label this thing, the meaning crisis. That's how a lot of guys, especially also girls, but a lot of young males in the West have sort of felt more lost. I guess you could say it's a movement and then they discover a certain figure and then it's like, okay, so this guy's the answer to all my problems. And it's a very, uh, fight club type thing, tapestry we've got going on. But I was just trying to wonder, um, it's hard to say one root cause as to why we've gotten into this mess that we're in where, you know, people are just all around confused. Nihilism is the sort of um, the flicker of the day and that like no one really knows what's going on. And it, it's it's impossible to say it's because of this one thing. It's more likely just a succession and progression of phenomena that have accumulated over time or you know, they add up in a weird way that we cannot understand. Only in retrospect, we can say, oh, yep, we go throughout history and these six things happened and it eases my mind to say that it happened in this way. So I'm going to say that this is what caused this. Um, but yeah, what, what do you think, it, just in general, like if we can start from a wide base, um, in the political sphere, like the left and the right, when you think of them, it's supposed to be the conservatives and the progressives, but the conservatives are not focused on conservation and the progressives are not progressing us further in any way, I think. So feel free to disagree, first of all. And secondly, where do you, where does your mind go in general when you think of, um, say, modern politics and how the level of influence they can exert on our lives? Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, uh, to be honest, I thought that I steer clear of politics per se, um, but rather I consider much of what's going on that's nominally labeled politics to be kind of the Sturm und Drang, you know, sound and fury uh, sort of expression of what's going on for people emotionally. And yeah, it happens to be working itself out politically. And there are some factors, I think, that are contributing to that. But frankly, I think a great deal of that is, yeah, it's precisely the issue. People try to look for some kind of minimal Newtonian causal arrow between A and B to explain their suffering. And so when they zone in on something or when something gets, you know, uh, scapegoated for them, uh, then they tend to sort of emphasize that. I think there are a lot of factors. I mean, the world is, by definition, sort of the most uh, complex dynamical system imaginable almost, uh, you know. So, of course, necessarily, there are lots of causes and historical causes and interacting forces. Trying to tease that apart in sort of real-time autopsy is not easy. But there are definitely some factors that I can see. I mean, politically speaking, you know, it depends where we're talking. But, you know, obviously, the United States uh, soaks up a lot of attention. And a big part of the problem they're suffering politically is that they're attempting to run, uh, as a friend of mine says, a 21st century democracy on a 
an 18th century operating system. Um, so, you know, their, their system of government um, leaves a great deal to be desired. And unfortunately, it's been sort of canonized uh, and enshrined, right, as a sacred document that is not supposed to change, even though the damn document has amendments. But yeah. uh, nevertheless, right, that's sort of a deadlock. That's not the case everywhere. So, you know, what are the other factors here? Some of what you're describing, it seems to me, insofar as we're talking about the meaning crisis, right, is a much broader issue than a political issue. So, you know, John's, uh, John Verveke's, um notion of the meaning crisis, right, and I think what some people are now referring to as the poly crisis or the crisis of crises or meta crisis, crisis to electric boogaloo or whatever they're referring to it as, you know, a lot of that has to do with underlying philosophical issues and spiritual issues, right? That's kind of the heart in some ways of John's argument, right? That we exist in a state of somewhat radical disconnection from the world. That's a consequence of the way that science has um, dismantled many of our earlier systems of connecting things. So we feel disembedded, right? We feel sort of like we lack place and sense. I would extend that a fair bit and say, you know, in some ways, progress is the very thing that's causing a lot of that dislocation, right? So, you know, I don't want to get into sort of just so evolutionary psychology, but the fact is, you know, in an evolutionary sense, we're still the same creatures we were, uh, you know, 500,000 years ago. Uh, and we've had a great deal of recent expansion and complexity, frankly, probably beyond what our system is really designed to designed to handle. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, most of our evolutionary history, we were relatively small groups of hunter gatherers. Uh, and, you know, as a species, we show certain really unusual traits, right? We're extremely low in terms of reactive violence compared to other species. Like if you took 100 chimpanzees and you put them into a subway car, you would expect to get a complete freak out. Whereas you could do this with humans quite routinely and the freak out rate is very low. Um, but we have a high degree of proactive violence, even more so than some of our closest cousins, which is to say that sometimes we like to get together in a group and go looking for trouble. Um, and that's a trait that in primates anyway is not isolated to males, but it's certainly one of the things that the males of the species do fairly often. Uh, so, you know, we have some of those forces at work and the larger you make your community and the more you're leaning on low reactive violence, the low you are, the, the more you're simultaneously suppressing certain aspects of proactive violence that are in the species. And so you get people chafing against each other and trying to put aggression someplace. You get things like um, what Elvin Toffler called future shock, right? Which is the idea that, you know, culture shock, when you move from one culture to another, right? You know, there's often a jarring, there's a jarring aspect to that, right? You move to another place and you have to learn their new social codes. How do people talk? How do they eat? Uh, how close do they stand to each other? What do gestures mean? This is jarring. And if you've ever lived in another place and then gone back home, it's doubly jarring because you're disconnected from the original context, but you're also kind of not quite part of the new context. You get stuck between worlds in a way. With future mm. shock, you have culture change occurring where things are changing in the culture sort of technologically and culturally fast enough that there's no home to go back to. 
So that was Toffler's argument, right, is that the, the future is a foreign country in a sense, especially when it's changing so quickly. And, you know, when you look across the species, you know, one of the traits that we can track is sort of ambiguity tolerance or ambiguity intolerance. The extent to which people are ambiguity tolerant, they can usually adapt to the rate of change. Although at this point, things have gotten weird enough that even most of those people are going, this needs to slow down, like I can't take it. Uh, you know, Snoop Dogg is on a TV show with Martha Stewart, we're living in the matrix. So, uh, you know, the kind of general absurdity level of things keeps ratcheting up. And for some people, that might be, you know, if they're high openness and high ambiguity tolerance, there's a certain sort of humorous novelty to that, right? The absurd aspects of it are, are digestible and tolerable and laughable. Um, if you happen to have low ambiguity tolerance, however, that's frightening. And, you know, historically speaking, we're in this really weird atypical position. Like the last few generations, as far as I can tell, are basically the first time in history that young people need to explain to old people how things work. Right. Mm. I, as far as I, I like to tug in cheek, I like to trace this back to the VCR, which is to say showing your, your grandparents how to work the clock on the VCR. You know, how do you set this thing anyway? Um, but that's been a continuous thing, certainly with the rise of computer technology, where young people are the keepers of knowledge that transmits to the older. That's a really strange, atypical reversal. Right. Um, you know, and on top of that, obviously, we've had cases of sort of actual social progress, which is to say we've had an expanding circle of uh, empathy and expanding circle of care, right? Our sense of, of legitimate personhood has expanded continuously. That's obviously a noble goal. And I would tend to say that that, you know, should keep expanding. And then on top of that, sorry, this is sort of a long answer. You asked for the time I built you a watch, but, you know, the other thing about it, you know, and again, all of this is multi-factor, but one of the big things that I see, and partly this is as sort of a peripheral observer rather than a participant, because I stay away from these technologies for the most part, is the way that social media has affected people. And to me, you know, again, on the periphery, this seems quite obvious. Uh, so the way that I sometimes think about this is by thinking about sort of unintended consequences of large-scale technology. So uh, the, the riff that I usually do here is like, when we invented the internal combustion engine, right? Let's take some dinosaur wine and put it into a machine and then make wheels go, which humans like, we wanna go fast. Um, we're that kind of species. Um, you know, what we thought we were inventing and distributing was personal convenience. We thought we were, you know, we thought we were creating and disseminating a transportation technology. And yes, uh, yes, it did that. But at the very large scale, what is that machine when we sort of pull back to the orbital view? And the answer is that, well, if you get a billion of these machines running, what you actually have is a distributed terraforming engine, which is to say a machine that takes carbon out of the ground and pumps it into the atmosphere to change your local environment to something more closely approximating Venus. So the large scale unintended consequence of the device is heating up the biosphere right? Uh, global warming, climate change. The small scale thing is personal convenience. That particular combination is frequently a dangerous one. And I think that you see much the same thing with social media. What we thought we were getting was community, right? And connection. And I don't know, the ability to engage in what seems to me like a never ending high school reunion with baby pictures. But what in fact we created was seemingly a machine that raises the global temperature of discourse, 
So by sort of siloing people and creating the illusion in many cases of conversation, right, and of discourse, of, of argument, uh, it's just increasingly polarized people. And the information environment is such that everything can get confirmed for everybody all the time. That has a way of entrenching particular groups, quite contrary to what we thought was going to happen in the 90s, uh, where we really we really lived in a utopian state where we thought the internet was going to you know, bring everybody together. <clears throat> and it sort of did. But what it did was bring them together into a bunch of highly specialized groups that dislike each other. So, you know, there's a lot of that, obviously, going on politically. It's sort of hard to ignore. People are, generally speaking, engaging in what I think of as a pretty intense, to borrow the Jungian term, shadow projection. So much of the time when I hear the sort of raw discourse around, you know, opposed sides in politics, left versus right, I can't quite figure out what the end game is for either side. It seems like the end game is sort of a complete rejection and denial. That's a very shadow kind of thing to do. Um, but of course, in keeping with Jungian thinking, I don't think you can ultimately reject your shadow. I don't think that works. And so the idea that you can just push the, the other political ideas out of the sphere completely, uh, just it doesn't work, in my opinion. And therefore, <clears throat> I can't quite figure out what the end game is. Um, you know, mm -hmm. liberals, I think, would like to banish mm -hmm. conservatives to the moon. Uh, conservatives, I think, would be quite happy if liberals went to live at the bottom of the ocean. But given that neither of those things is likely to happen and that everybody is, in fact, going to cohabit, the framework that we're operating in seems like profoundly counterproductive to me. Uh, and not just that, but really taking aim at a set of targets that are causes or sorry, that aren't causes, rather taking aim at things that are symptoms rather than causes. So I think we see a lot of you know, a lot of agitation happening around uh, sort of this mistake within the process, this sort of oppositional idea within the process. And of course, it's possible to do good work oppositionally, right? Debate is oppositional, right? But only if you're engaged in a good faith exercise where you agree on terms to begin with. And most of the arguments that you see at the extremes of this don't have those kinds of properties. Um, uh, for instance, as I often say, it's like, you know, if you go and you Google a list, uh, I used to teach high school. So you go and Google lists of like uh, debate topics, right? One of the ones you'll get is the abortion debate. And the thing about that debate is it's not a debate because in order to have a debate, you have to have a term in common, but they're not talking about the same thing. One group is talking about biological processes and the other group is talking about souls, basically. that Those are two different things. Uh, well, maybe not. Uh, but if they are the same thing, we haven't found that out yet. So, you know, when you're talking at cross purposes, you can't actually have, right? You're just speaking in two different languages. And I think a lot of the issues that we see in politics ultimately revolve around this. It's two different value systems that aren't translating or more than two. Um, so, yes, in that sense, I, to be honest, increasingly identify myself uh a bit tongue in cheek uh, in in the anarchist space uh, because because I don't want other people to tell me what to do and uh, on and on any side frankly um, and I think that it's quite possible to have a considerably less hierarchically structured system um, or more sporadically structured right uh, I think there are better ways to organize things than what we're currently doing but it's maybe a, mm. a deeper line so. 
Does that frame things adequately? <laughs> yeah, that yes, painted a yeah. big a big picture. Yeah, it'd be disappointing if you tried to lay out what we've been calling the meta crisis in 10 seconds. So no, we definitely needed that. Um, there's a lot of threads to pull on there, but did you have any thoughts, Sajin, first before that? Any disagreements, yeah, wild disagreements I, I, or agreements? No, no, no. I, I, I definitely see the whole disconnect between our intention, the original intention with all of these technologies and the actual outcome mm. are just... It, they're not slightly different they're just opposite ends of the spectrum from intention to outcome and um although i do see i feel like for example with something like social media the intention was could to, if i can use the term average person the intention was to connect the average person but what happened was the people that have the ability to take advantage of the technology are flying away now and using it properly and the average person is left behind because they've become i don't know drowned in the negatives of social media and uh so it's not like a completely um negative effect there's some people who know how to use it properly and their lives are truly more efficient truly better same with the you know chat gpt and all that kind of stuff truly more productive truly better and so mm -hmm. the intention does play out for a certain set of people and uh i find that relationship interesting because it doesn't it's not completely all bad it's just seems to have divided people a lot more than before and created a bigger gap. Yeah. I, it's not that I think that these technologies can't be sort of appropriately deployed and appropriately engaged with. It's just more that the way that we have them set up uh, is not like that. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think people that are able to have, are able to have a more, moderated approach to it can get a lot of value out of it. And, and I talk to people fairly routinely for whom it's doing good things. Um, yeah. You know, the question is really more on the balance. You know, for one thing, the technology seems to be addictive. And I yeah. use the word addictive loosely because there's lots of arguments about what constitutes an addiction. But, you know, in some sense, people have a very hard time. I speak with clients routinely about attempting to get away from social media or attempting to get away from swiping apps. Um, mm. the, the broad the broad set of, you know, whatever sex on tap uh, or at least relationship options on tap. You know, people find that stuff extremely difficult to pull away from. Right. It's yeah. designed to be compulsive, like a video game is designed to be compulsive. And one of the big problems, obviously, in that system is is that, yes, the ground level product, which we receive for free, is this interconnecting thing. But behind the scenes, of course, it's monetized, right? So as soon as you have an attention based on economy, or, or sorry, as soon as you have an economy based in attention, which is what most of these systems do, right? Mm, we get it for free because we are the product. They can gather data on us, et cetera, et cetera. But also our engagement then becomes sort of the preeminent concern. And as it turns out, you know, humans are not simply engaged by sweetness and light. Shocking. Right. So one of the easiest ways to drum up engagement is to piss people off. Uh, and so because of that, the algorithm pretty much automatically steers people in that direction. What will piss you off? And so consequently, you know, the last 10 years especially have been like a, a nonstop outrage storm from all directions. Right. So the sense of sort of the idea that other political actors are, are victimizing is very high. And that's not to deny that people are in some sense you know, facing victimizing consequences from various things. But this idea of sort of scapegoating and outrage, outrage 
constant outrage. Um, so, you know, I've even pulled back largely from a lot of my news consumption in the last five years. And one of the operating ideas I came to sort of developed out of my social media approach, you know, I'm not on Facebook. What that means is that if I get an invitation to a party, it gets sent to me. <laughs> I know they mm. want me there. It's a filtering mechanism, right? Somebody yeah. had to go out of their way, right? Which means I'm a pain in the ass, but it, it also means that I'm getting good diagnostic information about who actually wants me at a social event instead of hitting a button that includes 500 people. Similarly, yeah. not engaging in sort of the news cycle in the way that it's currently formulated. If something big happens, I'm going to find out about it. Now, there are a couple of cases where I had felt sort of weird about this. I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago and they said, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. And Maui's gone. And I said, what? And they said, oh, yeah, Maui's gone. I said, what do you mean Maui's gone? They said, yeah, burned. Maui burned. And now, on one hand, <clears throat> that is uh, surprisingly unsurprising these days. Oh, Maui burned. Okay. Uh, right. It did take a couple of days for that to filter through. But the point is, things of high significance generally get through to you. And a lot of the rest of it is noise. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. my take. Uh, you know, so, um, and in general, you know, the kind of fracturing of attention that these kinds of technologies, you know, have, unless you can very carefully constrain your relationship to it, it fragments your thinking. And certainly, you know, there have been arguments made, uh, books like uh, The Shallows, et cetera, et cetera. You know, our processing of information is down. I read more than I've ever read, but fewer books, right? Mm. More articles, more threads, more comments, right? The two things, you know, I've only got so much attentional space. Um, and as yet, I haven't encountered really anything on the internet that has the depth of a book, books yes. as far as i can yeah. tell are an as yet unchallenged technology which is good because i've got like five thousand of them in here so it would be kind of a crap investment if if they weren't but um you know the the kind of depth of discourse gets impaired by that um noam chomsky made this argument years ago when he was talking about the the news cycle and he said that one of the problems with the news cycle is soundbite because if they want to cut you down to 15 seconds you can't say much about a complex thing Right. And likewise, you know, you can be the guy that lays out, you know, like a four page argument on something. But there isn't a lot of space for that. I mean, that's why I said I'm, I remain perennially surprised that the flagship video on my site is a four hour long incomplete argument on alchemy, because that is a weird thing to exist, frankly, uh, in this kind of space, much closer to something, you know, sort of booky than what you normally see. Um, you know, around. And I keep making the joke, you know, uh, the future of education is TikTok, but I'm only half kidding. Um, you know, that yeah. is where the, informa the information landscape points. So, yeah, I don't know. Strange times. <laughs> Strange yeah. times. Yeah, I feel like the intention was definitely for these types of technology to be a tool in the shed, but it seems that it's become the shed itself. Like the entire shed has become the technology and that's where people live now. Um, and a conversation that me and Sid often have amongst each other is, is there a point of progression in technology, in whatever, where we can just stop and live like that into eternity? But obviously, that's not a human thing to do to just chill out and stop progressing because we've got too many systems in place now that are that are they're gone. They're on their way now. You can't stop it. But it's like, do you think if the net effect of these types of technology is negative, 
do you think we'd be better off to just stop the progression if you could, if that was a possibility? That's a tough question. That might be above my pay grade. That doesn't mean I'm not going to try it, but um, I don't know. I mean, that's hard to say. So let me preface this by saying, and for anybody that's not familiar, I try to hold my positions very, very lightly. So um, I think in contrast to many people, friends and colleagues, right, I I believe very deeply in sort of a, a completist over consistency project, right? So I have, a, I have a wide range, but it also means I try not to let my conclusions settle into a, a stable position. I think that that's, you know, it's just not, it's, it's not that useful. So I, I'm perfectly willing to entertain sort of multiple different hypotheses and keep it at that. So do I think that we can, you know, just hit a set point and be like, they're good enough? I mean, cultures, there are certainly plenty of cultures that hit stable positions for long periods of time and manage to keep themselves, comparatively speaking, stable. Now, the flip side of that is that in some ways, the history of the species is a history of where we go to a place, um, eat everything, and then leave a desert. I mean, that's a, that's a thing that we've done repeatedly in one form or another. Classic. When humans when humans show up, there are typically, you know, giant herbivores wandering around historically, and then we kill and eat those. Um, and, uh, you know, in many cases, you know, we sort of agriculturally despoil an area. I mean, if you've ever wondered why the Fertile Crescent is called the Fertile Crescent when it doesn't seem to be that fertile, uh, it's because it was. And... You know, much much the same is, I suspect, true of, you know, big swaths of the globe. So I don't know. Can we hit a stable point? Maybe. I think that the changes that we need to institute in this case, though, are actually relatively straightforward. They're just really difficult. So, you know, one of the, you know, we've hit, we've hit some transition points. It's not just like we can hit pause, right? We can't take what we currently have and just be like, okay, this. Because what we have is already more than really, I think, reasonably either society or, you know, the ecological system can handle, right? We've been an overshoot for some time. So this is not a good place to hit pause. We would have to scale back. One hmm. of the problems with that, if we're talking about, say, the climate aspect of things, right, which is one, it's one thread in sort of the, the meta crisis or the, the meaning crisis, but it's a pretty significant one. There's a big difference there. Um a lot of people, you know, I grew up in the Cold War. Um, and, you know, so like many children of the Cold War, I grew up with nuclear war dreams and the like uh, during the kind of Reagan era when it looked like the nukes might fly like Maybugs again. It was a tense time. And, you know, with the fall of the Soviet Union, we all had a, a big, you know, like liberal Democratic Party. And uh, Francis Fukuyama declared the end of history hilariously. Uh, and, you know, we sort of thought that you know, that's it. We had it licked and we were on our way to a Star Trek future. Um, but in <clears> fact, in fact, we find ourselves in many ways in a far worse predicament than we did in the Cold War. Because ultimately speaking, although the end of the world was looming in the Cold War, right, um, all we had to do to prevent it was not do anything. We just had to not hit the button, right? As long as we could keep people from hitting the button, <laughs> right? Keep the nuclear football cold, right? No, don't launch the missiles, right? And we had a few cases where that almost happened. Uh, and extremely brave individuals who we should all thank decided not to turn the keys. 
But the point is, we just had to not do something. We had to continue with mm. business as usual in order to continue. Now we find ourselves in a circumstance that is vastly, vastly worse, which is one of the things that makes the comparison between the two, I, I think, a bit facetious. Because what we have to do to get out of this situation is change absolutely everything. Yeah. All of us. Yeah. That's kind of a tall order. Um, and especially when we consider, you know, some of the things that we've sort of normalized. Now, in many ways, it would probably be good for us to roll things back. It's not clear that the results that we've had on balance are especially good, right? Um, we've, we've seen serious social fragmentation, right? People report much higher degrees of mental illness, higher degrees of loneliness, higher degrees of distrust, higher degrees of disconnection. Some of those things are probably warranted. Right. Um, the idea of trusting government seems almost quaint at this point. Right. Because there is a very deeply entrenched idea that everybody has that the government is a special interest group working for itself. Right. It doesn't matter who you vote for. The government always gets in. And of course, you can have individuals who might be sort of progressive in some way or opposed to that system or trying to make a difference. But the system itself has a way of bending, as does corporate culture. Right. People's goals in certain ways. Um, so how do we change absolutely everything? This is, I think, where arguments around the meaning crisis, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. I, the thing I think that ultimately needs to change, and it's not clear to me whether or not that's um, sort of possible given the timeline, but the thing that needs to change is our relationship to ourselves and the world. That's what needs to change. And it's the fact that sort of many of our for lack of better words, sort of spiritual traditions are gutted, right? So we have no way to establish the kinds of connections that can uh, overcome many of the systems we have, right? So capitalist consumerism has a lot of power behind it, right? And we can get into this, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with my my bits around the sorcerer state and the work of um, uh, Kulianu. Okay, well, we can touch on that stuff if you want, but suffice it to say, we exist in a sort of propaganda sorcerer state that's bent towards this kind of, you know, uh, consumption. Um, and we don't have a lot of strong countervailing forces in the culture. Um, so the idea of sort of changing everything is hard. And what people generally speaking do instead is they embrace the next step of progress, progress. But progress is not being framed so much in terms of you know, the social good per se, but rather in terms of, you know, some broad sort of technological access further down the road that we're already on. But I'm not convinced the road that we're on is actually all that good for us. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. seems to be um, in a smoke and mirrors kind of um, last few decades where everything seems a certain way, the opposite is likely true. And um, yeah, I really resonate with that idea of these false dialectics being created um, just for the sake of conceptual clarity, you could say. I'm sure there's more sophisticated reasoning, but um, because we can't, you mentioned intolerance, intolerance, ambiguity. Mm. Um, sorry, the other way around. Um, how much can we cope with and cater to um, uncertainty on the landscape in the future? And for someone like yourself, you mentioned that you like to be fluid in your positions and not um, fixate on one viewpoint or one uh, theory and let that govern you. I think you have enough of that uh, solid foundation. You know, you're obviously very well read, well versed, educated, and you have 
you know the transformative practices that are possible if you stay in close contact with wisdom traditions. You obviously are scientifically rigorous, but for someone who isn't so um, primed in that way, what would you recommend as a sort of, not a quick fix, but something they can do that would get the ball rolling in terms of um, lessening the information overload and the, the craziness and the absurdity of it all? And, and a way to also, um, we also were talking about um, like these, so the false dichotomy and the healthy synthesis point that sits at the top of that, what's without putting in the hours and devoting your life to it, is there something that someone can do just to help them in their day-to-day -day life? Yeah, I mean, I think the foremost thing that people can do, um, you know, provided, and not everybody has equal access in this way, is like <clears throat> get some access to nature. You know, go out and walk under some trees. There, there are numerous reasons to do this, not least that, you know, when you walk around trees, you're bathing yourself in a soup of phytochemicals that directly reduce your stress um, for whatever evolutionary reason, maybe because once we were monkeys that wanted to be close enough to a tree to scamper up it if we got attacked, I don't know. But, uh, you know, trees in and of themselves have this incredibly soothing, calming effect. That's a sort of minimum entry thing, which is like, leave your devices behind, set them up. Nothing is going to happen in the next hour that you can't pick up when you get back. Leave your devices at home, leave your podcasts at home, leave your Spotify at home, leave your, leave your pocket computer at home, go for a walk under some trees, maybe with another human being. That is an excellent way to like ground yourself back out into something more closely approximating reality instead of sort of mediality. Um, mm. Above and beyond that, I mean, if there was one tool in a certain sense, and this is more of a means to an end, kind of, but, you know, a, a meditation practice to whatever extent you can establish one, developing a certain amount of mindfulness, and that's not an easy thing to do, but, you know, any, any amount of mindfulness that you can nail down through a basic meditation practice is a very sound way to sort of reduce your mental chatter, but also pull yourself away from the kinds of threads of thought that tend to carry us away if we're not keyed to observe ourselves and interrupt things and to compare things. So, you know, meditation, which, you know, it, it does take some practice to get into, but there are, you know, lots of relatively simple techniques, right? And, you know, if you can get an exercise routine going, you can probably get a meditation routine going. It's frustrating, but it's frustrating in exactly the same way, which is that you start and it is a pain and it kind of hurts and it's difficult and you feel like you suck at it. But if you put three weeks in, usually, and you really put it in, you can start developing some of those skills. That's the bedrock, that kind of like degree of attentional control and mindfulness. If you can nail that stuff down, then there are lots of practices that thereafter um, can go enormous lengths, right? Lots of psychotechnologies that are extremely useful in navigating this. My particular approach is, is a different than many of, of my friends uh, and colleagues, um, insofar as I am drawing more on what you might call sort of occult traditions. Um, so I'm pulling a lot of psychotechnologies from, you know, traditional systems that would have been thought of as, you know, uh, magical um, in some way, shape or form. Um, lots that, of those systems- Dungeons and Dragons riff you have? Something like that? Well, that's part of it too. Uh, that's different. Uh, Role-playing games are, um, Dungeons and Dragons and by extension role-playing games are a fascinating piece. I don't quite actually know completely how they fit in, 
except that it's a relatively speaking new art form. Uh, really? Like it didn't exist in any way, shape or form before the 60s. That makes it uh, a quite new art form, one that is different than all other art forms and one that in many ways I think our, our media landscape is converging towards, right? Video games, for instance, are really, really trying to get the kind of core um, mechanics of role-playing games down. They're not there yet. But with the you know advent of large language models, right, uh, with virtual reality, which I'm increasingly interested in, this idea of having sort of immersive participatory narrative where your choices um, make sense within a kind of role that you're taking on, that's huge. And I think it's going to be an enormous ritual space and possibly a way that we can manage and negotiate a bunch of this stuff. But I'm thinking more actually in terms of, you know, psychological techniques that you have to develop a certain amount of attention for, but that once you do, uh, allow you to, I suppose, increase your amount of ambiguity tolerance, right? So mm. this is a tricky thing because it's a bit of a, there seems to be something of a biological set point. You know, people fall on a spectrum um, in terms of ambiguity tolerance. So there's a classic um, experiment that I think is very illuminating if you think about it, called the anomalous card task. So the deal is, right, they flash playing cards and you have to call the suit, right? So like hearts, diamonds, whatever. The trick with this experiment is that there's a, a rogue card in there. There's an anomaly. So like, uh, you know, a jack of hearts, except it's black instead of red, right? So it has the wrong, it, it has the wrong composite set of sort of gestalt features. Um, What's really interesting is that when they run this experiment, you know, there's a sort of a large set of people in the middle who initially are like, uh, uh, and they either miscall it, right? Or they, it takes them a while and eventually they're like, oh, oh, it's a, it's a heart, but it's black. So I don't know, hearts, like they understand there's a disjunct. There's a very yeah. small group of people on the one end who get it right away. But then there is also a small group at the other end that don't get it. And instead, what happens is they don't consciously recognize it, but they unconsciously get quite angry, right? So they'll be exposed to this thing. And rather than seeing the sort of anomaly in the gestalt, right, the way that it's breaking the frame of their expectations, uh, they get really agitated. I'm not being paid enough. It's too hot in here. This experiment is over. This tells you a lot about people's ambiguity, uh, tolerance and intolerance. And there are a number of experiments of this form where it turns out that, yeah, when you challenge somebody's categories, right? When you challenge somebody's categories and it happens underneath the conscious surface, a, a section of the population reacts very badly to this, right? Very badly. So I think some of these techniques are things that you can use to modulate this. And talking about the role-playing thing, you know, one of the, one of the ways that I used role-playing, we were running a study with D&D, um, with uh, high-functioning um, adults on the autism spectrum. And that's a, a population that I've done a lot of work with. And it's a population that uh, typically is known for having a low degree of ambiguity tolerance, right? They, they don't react well often, right? People on the spectrum don't react well to expectation violations. It's one of these things that throws them off. One of the interesting things about role-playing games is that you can use them as a setting in which you can gently challenge categories and create that ambiguity 
in a way that is delightful, right? Because it's in a game space, people can process it well. So you can twist some of the expectations and stuff and thereby create a sense of pleasure around things like mysteries or paradoxes or category crossing events. It seems to me that, you know, under those conditions, people actually do begin to expand their sense of ambiguity tolerance, it becomes less threatening to them. So I think that there are certainly, you know, various kinds of techniques. It seems like this is one of the things that happens with the increase of openness that happens when people take psychedelics like psilocybin, right? They see an increase in openness and often they begin to think in sort of intercategorical ways. There are definitely ways you can push on that. Um, and I think that in many ways that's essential. Um, the ability to tolerate a certain degree of ambiguity without freaking out is what is necessary to, in a helpful way, recognize that your categories are just mental constructs mostly, right? They're easy handles that you use to carve up the world, like language, but they're not, you know, they're not the be all and end all. And altogether too often, what you find is people eating the menu, right? Rather than dealing with the, you know, we can't really deal with the world directly, but rather than dealing with things with a recognition that those categories are themselves, you know, artificial, temporary, like you can use them to do stuff, but they're not the ultimate reality or something. Um, you know, when you're ambiguity intolerant, you need your categories to remain intact and threats to those categories are going to set you off, right? They, they seem quite threatening, you know, like it's an attack on your sense of the real. If, on the other hand, you can find those things delightful, right? If you can delight in paradox, if you can delight in not knowing, which is to say, right, a sense of mystery, uh, you're just in a better position to handle reality because it always exceeds our grasp. And then you stop eating the menu and start actually eating the meal. Yeah. And, and, and so the more absurd the reality as we go into time, as we go further in time, the more the people who thrive really thrive. And you see a more and more skewed dis distribution, especially with tech as well, because I guess one of the things in the nature of tech is to fragment. And so that generally has a negative charge to it. But I feel that those who can master it and those would be the one the ones who can master it would be the ones who have the, a higher tolerance for ambiguity and they can you know in a constantly evolving landscape they can really um find themselves they they really find themselves and um to, to touch on your earlier point um so you, you mentioned like going out and just going under a tree and that to me is like closer contact with reality so it's one thing that I think really makes people feel lost is uh, feeling like their actions don't matter. And I mm -hmm. feel I've got this from your friend and colleague, John Rebecki, him saying that we've reduced many, many different types of knowing down to the propositional. So when someone says to you, what is the meaning of life? You're like, I don't know. And even if I knew, I couldn't tell you in words. And mm -hmm. so we this reduction epistemically to just words and language and linguistics seems to be something that um, makes people feel inconsequential because we've lost that you know, reciprocal relationship between I'm a person who's in this world who can affect change and the world in turn does so to me and then shifting landscape that way. And so, um, yeah, that definitely resonates with me. Um, the idea, did you want to add anything session there? No. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, me too. Me, me too. Everything that, everything that you said there was gold. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah. Going back to the, I, the, the, that the, the question of whether we can stop in time and be happy and live in this earthly state of nirvana is always very uh, 
interesting to me because I do think we also have to go back in time because we have passed the the golden age of where we could have stopped if we could have stopped ever. But yeah. I do feel like, and maybe this is a skewed sense of what purpose is, but when a lot of people think about purpose, they think about tackling something out there in the world and external phenomena. And mm. when people think about a worthwhile purpose, they think about tackling something that's difficult. And a lot of the time, the difficult thing to do is to progress. And so if we took away the ability to progress, which we would have to do if we stopped everything and had a set, a rule set designed to not change and everyone to just live the same way forever into the rest of time, then that the ability to progress would be taken away. And so I just don't know how that leaves I don't know if we're the right species for that, but obviously yeah, that would, that would be good for like five minutes. Eh? And then we're like, okay, so now what it's, it's like that. Um, you'll be familiar with this, perhaps the uh, notes from the underground quote from Dossier. He's mm -hmm. saying, give a man all the cakes in the world. He'll be happy for something. And then after that, he goes out looking for trouble and he mm -hmm. is causing destruction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm an introvert. So to me, it's almost sort of straightforwardly obvious that the real challenges, yes, there are challenges outside of myself, but frankly, lots of the challenges are inside myself. And the yeah. problems, many of the problems that I see in the world seem to me to be an issue of attempting to solve the one with the other incorrectly, right? So, you know, yes, we have a kind of meaning whole and purpose whole inside of ourselves. The question is, like, is that primarily best addressed, you know, by attempting to do things in the world, get things in the world, acquire things, conquer things, uh, you know, um, you know, chalk up money in a bank account and notches on a bedpost. Like, to what extent are those things going to fill the hole that we feel? And my basic inclination is like, no, never. You know, this mm. is not a new idea. That shit's just Buddhism. Um, so. You know, the, the idea that the external social world in some sense can't meet all of those needs and that the economic system can't meet all of those needs and that the project of sort of technological advancement can't meet all of those needs, right? That much of this is internal work and we are afraid of that, right? Yeah. For, for lots of good reasons. That isn't new either. Um you know, I'm wary of the idea of a golden age. You know, there's a sense that, you know, uh, what, what's that line in the film? Don't look up at some point. Uh, Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio says, we really had it all, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, sort of. Yeah. But it's not like but we it's always, like, always had it all. <laughs> yeah, we always had it all. I mean, you know, yes, in some ways, things are great. Um, I, you know, uh, I don't sleep on straw and I don't have bed bugs. Unlike the vast majority of humans everywhere, uh, through all time and most places, uh, I lived with bed bugs when I lived in India. Never again, if I can avoid it. Um, not you ideal. Know, <laughs> yeah, they're not great. Um, they're better than mosquitoes. I'll say that. If I had to choose between the two, but anyway, I'd rather have neither. Um, <laughs> it, it's not the case that things were ever straightforwardly easy. It's not the case that yeah. I don't think that, you know, there were ever human beings, maybe in a very small hunter gatherer setting, relatively isolated, you might have a high degree of social integration, but you look at um, anthropology and it's pretty clear that those groups also can be prey to immense unnecessary suffering. 
Um, so, you know, the idea of sort of rolling things back, I think we need to roll things back that are being overtly destructive. And I think that we maybe are, hopefully, I think, hopefully, gradually getting into a position where we're beginning to turn inwards and look towards some of the causes of these, these things, right? That they are, mm. um, that they're inner phenomena uh, and that they have to be dealt with in that way. But for many people, that's not a natural condition, right? It's a, it's an atypical kind of cognitive configuration to be preoccupied in that way with the contents of your own mind. Um, and most people, of course, are experiencing things in a much more, you know, direct kind of realist sense. And if you do that, then yeah, obviously you know, you're looking for, you're looking, what's the problem here? What's the problem? What's the problem? Mm -hmm. And eventually you'll find a problem. Um, so yeah. The, sl uh, you the know, slow er sort of um, eradication of religion has to be a contributing factor there, right? The idea, I guess most, um, most major world religions for the longest time have always said, look within first when something happens, when there's an external manifestation, first look within and then look without. But I guess that that has to be a factor there, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, my inclination here is to say that most of the world's religious traditions, this sometimes gets me in hot water, but they, they have a, a mystical root and then a political body which accumulates around it, a political and economic body. Mm. The mystical yeah. root, generally speaking, you know, it's not that they're all saying exactly the same thing. You know, I'm not a strict perennialist, so I don't believe that it's, you know, there are a thousand roads up the mountain. But we are dealing with sort of common circumstances. We have much more in common, by and large, as human beings than we have differently. And the systems tend to kind of rely on that. But then after that, you get a political accumulation and an economic accumulation. So, you know, you go back to the New Testament or something, and you read the ideas of, you know, Jesus Christ. And the guy had some interesting ideas. Uh, programmatic homelessness, radical egalitarianism, um, Gnostic contact with the spiritual, right? The kingdom of God is within you. Okay. So you get those ideas, but then promptly you get a church based on those ideas, which certainly doesn't engage in, in programmatic homelessness because the, the Pope, bless his soul, lives in a city that is a palace, that is a country <laughs> filled with incalculable amounts of golden art. <clears throat> this is not give away everything you own and engage in programmatic homelessness. It's not radical. Do as I say, not as I do. No, no, it's not radical egalitarianism. It's not unmediated Gnostic access to the spiritual because, in fact, your access necessarily needs to be mediated by the sacrament and by specialists. And so you tend to see that kind of everywhere is that things get, you know, politically and economically bound. But the the core of those things in many ways is the spiritual. And I don't know that there's ever been a time that that was accessible to everybody but the question is how many people in a population have to be sort of focused in that direction before it starts to have some kind of cascading effect on the overall structure. It might be lower than we think. Now, the other thing is, you know, I wrote a, I wrote a paper for John, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe, um, where we were, you know, talking about meditation and some of these other psychotechnologies. And the basic argument that I made at the time was meditation is great. But if it's if it's sort of all we have to throw at this problem, we're fucked. Yeah. Like it's sorry, you'll pardon my language, but it's too slow. No, it's, it's too hard. It's too inaccessible. 
the argument that I made at the time was, you know, if we're going to have any hope of attempting to pick this up, we need maybe to examine how much of this stuff is working from a cognitive science perspective, and then possibly attempt to actually use technology to accelerate it. Now, that might be a nightmare. I don't know. But as far as I can tell, right now, the way is to apply more into it. So that's part of where my interest in psychedelics, psychotechnologies, um, non-invasive yeah. brain stimulation, like the hope is that we may be able to nail down uh, a, um, a more efficient, more effective version of these things that we've been doing for thousands of years. And that might be enough to sort of bootstrap us into um, a wisdom ethos. You know, that's kind of the hope, right? That if we can make it kind of accessible in that way, then possibly uh, enough of the population, you know, might get on board that we will have a bit of a, a bit of a heel turn and actually look at what we're doing. Um, you know, but right now the prognosis is not great, to be honest. Um, but you know, yeah. that's what happens. Civilizations rise and fall. On that last uh, meditation point, yeah, I definitely found when I started meditating that there was such a great mental block, like everyone experiences, but I had to first go away and do a certain set of things, refine myself to be even in the um, like pre-set pre of meditation so I could do that. And so mm -hmm. I think you were touching on something like a movement-based and contemplative practice, something that buttresses and supports the meditation. You can't just do that one thing and expect all your problems to go away. And I think that is a common um, misconception, right? Like the guys, the gurus that have these bundles and courses online, like I will teach you how to meditate. Like, great. Even if you can do that, that's insufficient to say the least. Um, but uh, also going to your earlier point, Anderson, um, you mentioned the wisdom, like let's say that a prophet turns up. And then after that, very soon, let's uh, he says great things, but then it becomes institutionalized and that's when the problems arise. Do you think that's a feature or a bug? Do you think there's a natural road that every time that happens, we get to we get to the church or we get to the mosque or something, something like that takes over? Like, is that embedded within that flow of thinking or is that just uh, a pathologized version when it's when it's gone wrong? Good question. Um... I mean, it certainly seems very consistent, right? It's it's definitely a thing that happens over and over again. And so one is inclined to be like, well, if it's happening in a bunch of different circumstances independently, then it seems like there's something baked in. Whether or not it's possible to, I don't know, prevent that or forestall it, it's definitely difficult. I mean, one of the things, you know, very often it's the case actually that if you're talking about this stuff, you know, you attract a certain amount of attention. And it's understandable because when you're talking about self-transformation, you're talking about meaning, people are hungry for that. But sometimes that means that they also, they do project uh, in your direction, right? So you get a you get people who are interacting with you as though there is something vaguely supernatural going on. And other people who work in the space are familiar with this, I'm sure. You can try to diffuse that all day long. But the key way to diffuse it is humility, which weirdly often has the effect of amplifying it, right? So, so people, uh, you know, take the, if you say, no, no, like, I'm just a guy, like, I'm just a guy and I'm just figuring shit out and stumbling forward at high speed, like everybody else, right? But in saying that, people very often roll that over into whatever projective idea they have. Mm. And they're like, oh, you're so humble. It's like, yeah, yes, but that's not what I'm like, you know, that's not what yeah, I'm getting yeah. at. It, it's hard to avoid. Um, and so 
you know, necessarily some of this has to do with organizational scale. You get beyond a certain scale of individuals and necessarily people are operating secondhand at things. They, you don't have the same opportunity to do corrective interpretation and so on and so forth. Is it inevitable? I don't know. I, I haven't seen too many instances where people have managed to interrupt that process. You know, it seems to, it seems to happen pretty regularly. And, you know, as far as the online courses go, look, mindfulness is a super useful skill. Meditation, super useful skill, bedrock for all kinds of things. It's the sort of thing that people should learn to do. Like I think people should learn to throw a punch, right? It's part of the basic mechanics of how you operate and it's useful to know how to throw a punch, <laughs> learn to you know, uh, navigate your way through a conversation with active listening. These are things that will help you, all right? And learn some meditation. Meditation is not... A panacea. Uh, we don't talk enough about the dark side and the downside of meditation, um, which there are. And very often it's the case, and this has been noted for a long time, that although the sort of original traditions that we see many of these sort of meditative systems coming out of don't often have a sort of a psychotherapeutic component to them, very often it's the case, I think, that people need to do psychotherapeutic work first before they start doing meditative work. Right? That a lot of the time, the, the turmoil that they're experiencing needs to be sorted through a bit before they have any business trying to, to drop into the core. And if they don't have some of that stuff sorted out, then very often things go off the rails, right? Especially if they're doing it you know, by themselves rather than within a kind of community structure like a sangha or with a teacher or something of this kind. So, um, yeah, I mean, just trying to jump in we're all very impatient, right? We're all very impatient. Right. Yeah. And right. we I want testify to, to that. Me too. I mean, <laughs> and in some ways, that's, I mean, that's the very essence of progress and technology is we're impatient, right? I, you know, in my 20s, I used to sort of half jokingly have an expression that I used, which was, there has got to be an easier way to do nothing and still feel good all the time. It's like a, perverse version of Taoism or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I think that's more common. It, it actually expresses something that's really common in the culture. And it expresses itself very often in the way that we, the way that our technology develops things, uh, you know, McDonald's. Let's take something that is digestible called food and let's chemically alter it and make it sort of soft to the point where you don't really have to chew it. You can eat it like a duck. And let's load it with fat and sugar and salt and all of these bliss point things. And let's load it up with chemicals that make it taste amazing as long as it's aromatically outgassing, right? And what do we end up with? Something that is not food really anymore and something that is bad for us. We take um, coca leaves in their original context within the Andes. They appear to aid digestion and help with high altitude metabolism. And they give you a bit of pep in your step like a cup of coffee would. No big deal, right? You have some coca leaf tea or you chew a quid of coca leaves, whatever. But no, that, that was not sufficient for our culture. <laughs> for our yeah, culture, yeah. we needed to boil that shit down into a powder and rail it. And if that's not fast <laughs> enough, we need to turn it into a rock and smoke it. And this is what we do with things all the time. We have these hypertrophic stimuli and a lot of it has to do with more faster now, right? Mm. So, which is almost, you know, when we look at sort of the futurist roots of the concept of progress, more faster now has been 
our ethos around a lot of this stuff. It's the same thing that we're doing, you know, around our impatience with change. And honestly, arguably, maybe it's even what I'm suggesting when I'm talking about accelerating things with technology. It's maybe I'm playing right into the trap. I don't know. Um, <laughs> difficult but, uh, to, to not play into it, though. It's, it's very hard. difficult to it's very difficult to step away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, All faster now. I'm pretty sure that's the Apple slogan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's the that's the plight of the unindividuated man, isn't it? It's the guy sitting in his um, mom's basement, that st- uh, typical trope of Cheeto duffed all over his chest, video games. Why can't I do this forever? And you can, but why can't I do this forever and have it feel good and rewarding and productive? Um, right. Yeah, I, I heard... Um, and I have I heard, nothing against, I have nothing against video games or Cheetos in <laughs> their appropriate context. It's very easy for both yeah. of those things to be excessive but they're fine in small doses, like many things. It's it's good that you said small doses because I went on a bit of a tirade two years ago thinking, oh, I, I can extend that out to anything. I can say that for heroin. Like, it's fine in the right context. And to, yeah, I went a bit too far with that and turns out no. But yeah, I had to be <laughs> <laughs> pulled down a notch there. But yeah, you can fall into these echo chambers if you think about all this stuff by yourself in, in a room just <laughs> surrounded by books and it's like, this guy did it this way, so I can do that too, and yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, heroin does have useful applications in the right context. The question is, what's the context? You know, somebody <laughs> I know, for instance, you know, when their their mother was terminally ill, went to the doctors, she was in an enormous amount of pain from her cancer, and said, give her heroin. They have it. And they were like, oh. And he said, like, she's dying. She's in pain. Give her heroin. Right. To because heroin is an extremely effective analgesic. It's extremely effective. So, okay, in that context, fine. You know, and maybe even, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a, I don't know what you'd call it, cognitive libertarian or something. I'm not much for people telling me what I can and can't do with my own mind and my own Mm. body. So, you know, my exposure to opiates is pretty limited. Uh, The exposure that I have had was a delightful rainy day Sunday. Like I don't mind being stoned on painkillers. It's not something I'm interested in doing every day. Um, but again, you know, in small doses, okay. The Even that, is, like it's it's to be resourceful. It's like, what can I extract from the experience long-term? It's right. not about actually wanting to be numb, right? Right, yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's exactly right. And for sure, you know, the for the most part, people's substance abuse, I mean, substance abuse in general and addiction period, always has an emotional root. Always. Right. Mm. And and this is pretty well, I think, established in some circles. You know, the um, are you familiar with uh, Bruce Alexander's work on uh, Rat Rat Park? No, 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 no. no. It's it's an interesting it was an interesting experiment. So Bruce Alexander was at uh, McGill, I think, Montreal in Canada. And so he did he did this interesting experiment. Right. When you're looking at addiction, the gold standard against which you benchmark everything is cocaine, right? So what you typically do is, you know, you give a rat a choice between a bottle of cocaine water and a bottle of regular food or whatever, and then you see how often it goes for the coke water instead of the food. But what Bruce Alexander did, I mean, sort of what he grasped was, yeah, but the problem is that the rats in these experiments are in weird, atypical situations, right? Rats are highly social, creative creatures. 
They have complex social lives and they're active problem solvers. Instead, these rats are basically living in solitary confinement in a cage with no toys and no companions. Well, yeah, if you put me in solitary confinement and you offer me a choice between the food train crack, I know what I'm going to pick because I can't go anywhere. I'm in solitary confinement. Yes, I am going to numb myself. If you take that same rat, however, after it's addicted and you reintroduce it to a population of other rats in a spacious environment with ample opportunities for social interaction and problem solving, the rats drop the cocaine like a hot rock Mm. because the cocaine is just meeting a kind of temporary need from the stresses of the environment. This is the case with, frankly, many addictions that we're using them to emotionally modulate in one way or another. Um, And, you know, that goes for everything. Sometimes that's useful and sometimes it is just numbing. And where it's numbing, what is it numbing? Well, usually it's numbing disconnection, loneliness, inner pain, anxiety, depression, you know, things that people don't have a sense of how to address otherwise, right? And people feel disconnected, atomized, isolated. And yeah, you're going to get a drug problem then. If you look at you know, um, soldiers, American soldiers, GIs in Vietnam, huge numbers of those people engaged in, you know, rampant drug use and significant heroin, like 99% of them dropped it as soon as they got stateside because they were back into a more normal environment where they had more normal goals, right? Mm. So, yeah, our relationship to substances is largely kind of, you know, again, it's it's um, misaimed. Right. We mm. we project yeah. to the substance because the substance is an easy, quick way to address the immediate concern, but without resolving the actual underlying emotional stuff. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it, it buys the government some time to play the fake blame game. And yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't even get me started. Hey, look, things have become in some ways remarkably, remarkably open in the last year. I mean, I'm speaking from Canada. So. even though everybody was asking them to legalize pot for like a million years, (laughs) you know, the fact that they finally did it, I think has still not totally caught up with people. And uh, it it is actually quite remarkable. I mean, you know, the premier of Ontario who allegedly was a, allegedly was a hash dealer back in the day has now succeeded in becoming the largest cannabis dealer in the world. This is the single largest cannabis market in the world. And he, he runs that. Um, you know, the government will bring cannabis right to your house here. Now, is there a, you know, a backup government agenda there? Well, maybe stoned people don't cause as much trouble. And so it's probably a better drug to ship out to your population than the old one, beer, which does cause trouble. Um, Mm. If you see two people fighting on a street and you got to place a bet, are they stoned or drunk? Yeah. 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 Easy bet. I win every time on that bet. (laughs) Yeah. And likewise, here, here in Toronto, I've been astounded in the last year because we're seeing the same kind of progression as happened with cannabis happen with magic mushrooms. So there are mushroom dispensaries operating outside the law, but still quite openly as businesses all over the city. That is a big deal. The fact that we're getting psychedelic psychotherapy finally acknowledged as a useful tool, the fact that we have ketamine clinics, the fact that um, they're finally approving MDMA for certain kinds of right clinical uses for dealing with trauma and stuff like this is a, a quite big shift and a weird one. Uh, you know, career wise, I came in when all this stuff was still completely can't talk about it, can't touch it. 
we appear to be having a big culture shift around that now. I'm waiting for that to backlash, but because of course the same thing has happened with meditation is now happening with psychedelics. You got the idea that, you know, the, the routine people that are like, if everybody just went and had ayahuasca, if we could just, just force feed our leaders ayahuasca, like uh, ducks being fed corn for foie gras, uh, then all of a sudden we would break through in utopian world. It's like, eh, yeah, might be more to it. Yeah. But it's still an interesting shift. And seeing some of this stuff compound, watching people become disenchanted, I think, with the way that things are um, and with the, the way that we've structured stuff, there's a lot more questions around it. I think that all of that is prerequisite, uh, hopefully anyway, to a sort of broad reassessment of, you know, what is the good? You know, what's worth doing? What really improves your life? How can we deal with these things in a way that actually makes a difference instead of just getting us to buy a shiny new something or other? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, so on the wider topic of, say, addiction, trauma, and you know, chasing short-term highs, instant gratification, which we seem to be all caught up and obsessed in. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the hero's journey. And um, mm. so to the extent that there is, you know, it's disputable what the relationship exactly is between the inner and the outer. We talked about, uh, you know, the micro, macrocosm relationship. Uh, what is the true nature between those two things? But Let's say that there is one and all of, you know, drug culture and that is essentially a cover up, um, maybe not fundamentally, but is partially. Mm. Um, so in your typical like outline hero's journey, you have, you know, the hero, he meets the, I don't know, he has his call, the phone rings, call to adventure, and then he accepts the call because he's the hero. And if he didn't accept the call, honestly, I think the phone would just ring a few more times until he accepted because he's the chosen one. This is Harry Potter, right? This is the boy who lived. Yeah. Sure, um, there's a reason refusal to the call for the call or refusal of the call is on the curve for a reason. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's good. That means I'm on the right track. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah. So then eventually he says, yes, he crosses the threshold. He, um, he enters some sort of magic land and then there's all the, it's, it's a brand new world, right? So let's say this is Harry Potter finally going through you've seen harry potter obviously right so to be honest i have i've seen those films in kind of a spotty way i've i've never read the books it's a weird gap for me actually it's yeah. something i really need to get to but i've read the first okay. one i haven't read the subsequent ones okay, and i've okay. seen some of the movies but I, I basically understand yes okay and then so he, he enters the magic world he faces all these challenges and temptation then it's all very alluring and you know mystical for the first time now he finally feels like his decisions matter in the world because there's a cause and an effect that he can actually map cognitively rather than mm -hmm. something that's three four orders away um eventually he, you know he's fighting the what they're calling the externalization or the manifestation of his inner demons um Eventually, he has a mighty du duel with his shadow incarnate, however that looks, whatever form that comes in, and he falls down into the abyss. So I think I think for that abyss to come about, like in Star Wars, which I haven't seen, but I'm familiar with the scene where Luke and Darth Vader are fighting, and the, the hero has to choose death over the dark side, and that seems to be like a critical juncture where... Uh, yeah, so Darth Vader's like, no, join me here, join me here. And he's hanging off the ledge in the spaceship. And he's like, no, no, I will not join you because he's a hero. So he has to choose complete dissolution and non-life over joining evil. 
Um, very, very Christian, I think. But <laughs> yeah, eventually he enters into the abyss. And then what I wanted to get to and ask you both is, is there a parallel to be drawn there be- between that and what is in contemporary culture called the dark night of the soul? Um mm-hmm. I doubt that people who have clicked on an Anderson Todd video don't know what that is. But if you could first give us a quick rundown of what your definition of the dark night of the soul would be, the spiritual version, and then also what would be the various forms of resurrection out of that back into um, back into the non non spiritual world. Mm-hmm. Okay, so usually when we're talking about the dark night of the soul, we're talking about uh, things that I think of as being somewhat distinct, but that can definitely, one can lead to the other. So so f- the first part of it in terms of what you're talking about, shadow confrontation, and the f- fact that you've never seen Star Wars makes me feel so old. But anyway, um, but it's fine. It, it, Star Wars is a major religious text from my generation. That's all. Um, much as Harry Potter uh, is for the generation <laughs> just underneath me, which is why I need to read it. Um, so... Yeah. I mean, part of the thing is that, okay, we're creatures of parts, right? This is a a point I harp on quite often, but we're creatures of parts. One of the primary illusions that causes problems for us is what I call the unitive bias, right? It's this, this sort of wallpapering over of the gaps of things, which gives us a coherent and unitive and, and binding sense of our external reality, but also our internal reality. And it's not accurate. We are, in fact, creatures of parts, right? Different systems which are, you know, swapping in and out and often operating at counterpurpose. So in some ways, the core sort of psychodynamic insight, in my opinion, is the moment where you say, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Right? Or why did I do that? Or did I do that? Or, right, this idea that you're not completely in the driver's seat. And it's an illusion to believe that you are, right? There are parts with their own agendas, which are quite capable of operating both sort of in your field of view, but also outside your field of view. That's a big part of psychodynamic theory, period. One part of the kind of dark night of the soul and the shadow confrontations comes up when we are attempting to deal with something that is that is shadowed to us, something we've pushed outside of our self idea. Or if we're attempting to reconcile two parts of us that are coming in some way head to head are coming in conflict with each other. So as a a personal example, um, as I was coming up on my 40th birthday, uh, I kept telling sort of everybody in my social circles, I kept saying, I can feel something coming. And I'm a weirdo. So they're used to hearing that kind of thing from me. Uh, They were like, what's coming? And I was like, I don't know, but I can feel something coming. Like I can sort of feel some kind of transformative thing on its way, right? I can kind of, I can, I can pick up the stirrings of it. Um, and I don't quite know what it looks like yet. So, you know, as I sort of approached 40, I thought, well, maybe what I'm looking at is an integration of two very different parts of myself. My 20s and my 30s had radically different flavors. My 20s, I was, you know, wandering the earth, solving mysteries. I very seldom had a job. I didn't live anywhere with fixed address. I did lots of spiritual exercises and a ton of writing. Um, you know, it was a it was a very sort of freewheeling period of time. 
uh, my my Luftmensch period, as a friend of mine calls it, airman who seems to both survive on air but also drift from place to place like a you know tumbleweed or something. My thirties were far more career oriented. It was really like buckle down, nail stuff down, make connections, get ahead, earn money, get some standing, you know, all that good, you know, bourgeois middle class horse shit. And so as I started to come towards 40, I thought, oh, well, maybe what I'm looking at here is an integration of the opposites. Oh, boy. Right. It's a Jungian feast. Finally, I'll get to combine together this free, creative, spiritual side with this, you know, more realistic, uh, monetarily oriented, uh, whatever. I thought, great. These two things are going to come together. It's going to be like a superpower, right? I'll be financially established, but also be able to do whatever weird thing I want. That was the dream. Until it started to actually happen. And what I forgot, somehow, despite the fact this is my area of specialization and I do it for a living, what I somehow forgot, okay, was that the reconciliation of opposites in that sense is not a gentle cookies and rainbows process. It's like raw lava pouring directly into ice-cold seawater. It's explosive. The opposites are explosive. So I was sitting in my analyst's office at the time, and I said to him, you know, I feel like these two parts of myself are pulling me. They're pulling me. They're pulling me. They're pulling me. They're pulling me. And I threw my arms out like this. And then I looked. I was like, uh-oh, that's not good. <laughs> that's not, I'm miming crucifixion. That's never, that's not good, right? Um, but there's something to that. The two things interact quite violently, right? Now, one of the reasons that they interact as violently as they do, and this is sort of well detailed in, in depth psychology, is that from the perspective of the parts, integration is not some lovely, yay, we're going to turn into a higher being that fuses, you know, now we'll be a mystical alchemical rebus or something. That's not how they see it. They see it as death and they fight it, right? They fight it. And if your two sides are polarized in that way, if they really see each other as opposite things that certainly cannot coexist, which is why they were shadowed or split to begin with, then the idea of integrating them is something that typically these psychological components in us will resist powerfully and they'll resist it with everything they've got because as far as they're concerned, it's death, right? So that's one form of dark night, which is this crucifixion state where you're being pulled between opposites. Now, eventually those things can integrate. We do this stuff. We do, in fact, synthesize and integrate things into a deeper kind of quality of being. Um, the comparison that I make sometimes is um, binocular vision, right? So like, you know, if you uh, I have a pen, you'd think I had a pen somewhere. Okay, well, I'll use this. So if you have this and you like, you know, put it in front of your eyes and you switch eyes and you really pay attention to what you're seeing, right? What you get is two very different images of this, actually. Mm. When your brain integrates these two things together, you don't get two pens, right? Or two, what is this? Pencil lead, I think. You don't get two of these objects. That's not how that occurs. What happens instead is that they get synthesized into one thing with an additional dimension of information, with depth, Right? You get the third dimension out of it. And that that's how, in fact, we synthesize information together. Right, So it's possible, of course, to integrate two things that are seemingly very different and come to a place that has more depth. But the individual things themselves, as insofar as their sort of psychodynamic systems, are going to resist. 
right? And that is extremely rough. Now, the real kick in the ass happens when that happens to co-occur with the other feature that's very common to the dark night of the soul, which is, as you said, this kind of drop into the abyss. And that most of the time is something that people are experiencing as some variety of nihilism, right? And there's a bunch of different forms of it. There are, you know, the like Newtonians who, you know, like are really, really insistent about not updating their models to include 20th century science. And so they they end up with this, we're just in a universe of pinballs and, you know, every, all the particles are just moving and it's all predictable and it's a computer and therefore nothing is meaningful. And it's like, physics hasn't thought that for some time. Like you're really using an outdated model there, but it's obviously a powerful one. Another variation of it is this sort of Darwinian selfish gene stuff. You know, love isn't real. I'm just a giant robot being piloted around by gene complexes that don't give a fuck about me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? People get into those spaces and of course they feel powerless. And that sense of powerlessness and meaninglessness, the idea that things are just bumping into each other and nothing matters and all of our human concerns are, aren't real in some sense, when people get into that, then they really plunge into something, right? It's corrosive. Um, the same thing happens if people sort of plunge into the waters of like a Humean skepticism, right? Where they begin to challenge and challenge and challenge and challenge and challenge, right? And yeah. suddenly they're like, yeah, there's nothing I can hang on to anymore, right? Um, that is a sort of second element of Dark Knight. And that corrosive aspect where the meaning structures and stuff descended to nihilism, um, you know, that's nihilism and absurdism. Uh, people don't have terrific tools to deal with those things, right? They're, they're hard to argue with. I deal with lots and lots of clients who are experiencing this in one way or another. My answer to that problem is, yeah, well, you have to learn to go to the abyss on purpose mm. regularly. That, that's how you actually learn to deal with it, in my experience. You don't flee from it because sooner or later it will catch up with you. You're going to have a day where you didn't have enough lunch. You stayed up too late. You had a difficult emotional conversation. You feel vaguely shit about yourself for some reason or another. We all have those days. And when you do, right, everything can start to fall apart. You can be quite dysregulated and suddenly be like, fuck this. Like, nothing matters. You know? I personally keep very close track of my boredom because boredom for me is the gateway to depression. So if I start to get bored... It usually goes like this. Eh, I'm not interested in working on that. What am I interested in working on? Uh, not really interested in working on every, anything. Actually, everything sucks. None of this is meaningful. <laughs> Actually, nothing is meaningful. Actually, the project of my life is not meaningful. Oh, God. Right? But yeah. you can let that catch up with you and pounce on you, or you can periodically steer into it and learn how to navigate it. And it is, of course, you know, there are lots of traditions that speak to this, this ability to sort of navigate it, right? The difference is that if it sneaks up on you and it sort of overwhelms you, that is a much worse experience than if you voluntarily decide to walk into the cave with a certain kind of practice and learn how to swim those waters. Because, of course, it, it's, it's just a, it's a particular frame and mindset. There's nothing sort of philosophically immutable about any of it, despite the way that it feels at the time and despite the way some people talk about it. Um, I get this a lot when people are sort of going down this road with, 
running a scientific argument about metaphysics and I'll have people come and say like, Oh my God, like if they've just disenchanted the world and there is no meaning, I'm like, no, first off, you really got to take a look at what's being excluded from their theory and what's being assumed in their theory. And I think you'll find that no, it's, it doesn't, yeah. you don't have to interpret it that way. There are ways yeah. to climb out. There's a lot more room for um, maneuvering than people tend to think. So, you know, but we don't have much in the way of tradition around this. So if we're talking in that broad sense about dark night of the soul, you know, those are often the kinds of things you're talking about. This inner conflict split where you have to reconcile things that really don't want to be reconciled. And to use your example of Star Wars, I mean, yes, Luke, Vader does his thing. If I had known, I would have brought costumes. Anyway, Vader does his thing. Uh, and he's like, together we'll rule the galaxy, you know, whatever. And Luke, you know, yeah. you're my son. And Luke says, no, it's not true. And then he jumps off the thing after Vader chops his hand off. But that's not where you see the integration. In that moment, you see a rejection. Where you see the integration is later. It's in the third film. Because Luke's chopped off hand gets replaced with a robot hand at the end of the second movie. This and him putting the black glove over it is this note that, in fact, he's becoming more like his father, right? more machine than man now. The difference is that rather than eventually giving into that, he, in fact, does the opposite. He sees Vader as, as a human, as his father. And then you get this final scene, right, where after having dealt with the Emperor, Vader removes his mask and he's a man, an ill-formed man, a kind of like mushy, doughy, baby face man, not at all Hayden Christensen. But the point is that like that integration occurs because he reconciles himself to the fact that he isn't losing his humanity, right? He manages to integrate and thus integrate Darth Vader. So yeah. the drop into the abyss, the rejection is necessary at some level, right? To facilitate that process. But ultimately speaking, that isn't what gets the job done. What gets the job done is the, is the recognition that no, actually there is a sameness and that sameness is redemptive, right? Yeah, okay. That's a phenomenal answer. That's actually mind-opening for me. Um, but yeah, I have many thoughts on that that I go want watch, to say go back. Watch, but... Go watch the Star Wars trilogy. And I say trilogy because Disney will tell you there's nine films and it's a lie. There's only three. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. Is it four, nine, five, three. six or one, two, three? Four, five, six. Okay. No, one, two, yeah, three I... aren't good either. <laughs> yeah okay so i do have many things i want to say back to that but did you want to comment on that first on anything related to the hero's journey session or like um confrontation no. with shadow or nihilism no th no yeah. that was one of the lessons i was hoping to get out of this video i just got the lesson so i'm happy to leave that at that <laughs> was the lesson okay. there are only three star wars films because that's the takeaway that i was going for here yeah the lesson anyway. was to buy disney plus you know and get started <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yeah so I, I have been thinking for a while about the whole um return from the abyss thing but you touched a lot on what initially gets you into there which is really really interesting as well um so i think one you see it in uh, we'll use the lion king as an example because harry potter and star wars we both seem to be halfway on and it's also lion the lion king we, we in session always talk about this i think it's the greatest movie of all time um what was what was okay. what was your what was your one again what my greatest movie of all time oh, i think it's like lost in translation with scarlett johansson oh, yeah. and bill murray oh. but um yeah the lion king is an interesting one definitely 
Yeah. The, the, um, um, we, we've recently come to the conclusion that Rafiki is basically uh, what Socrates is to Plato. You know, he doesn't actually exist. <laughs> He's just um, Plato's excuse. If any of his theories go wrong, he can just say, I'm just joking. That's what Socrates is. <laughs> okay. I like that. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. Funny. He, he's being polite not to say what he really thinks. Eh? <laughs> no, 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 no. I actually do like that. I haven't seen The Lion King in a while, to be honest. And the first time I saw it was at a drive in theater. So, um, mm. but uh, I have seen it. I mean, it's funny. The way I, I, I think about The Lion King, and to me, of course, The Lion King is Hamlet. Yes, of course. And isn't Hamlet the Egyptian story? Yeah, I mean Hamlet has wow. Hamlet has uh, yeah sort of a number of um, predecessors. Um, I mean the interesting thing about Hamlet, Claw Hamlet, that isn't in the Lion King is the specifics around how Hamlet's motivational system is kind of fucked up, right? That, that's part of what makes Hamlet interesting. Shakespeare took out the reasons why Hamlet was pausing. And vacillating, and so you just end up with this really interesting piece where we, uh, this is uh, T.S. Eliot's analysis, right? You, you know, you remove this chunk, and so all of a sudden we're just fascinated about why he behaves this way, right? Uh, and the answer is that they removed the reasoning. Um, you know, Hamlet is, of course, super interesting, partly because it's uh, it's one of the poles of our society in a way, right? Beer commercials are on one end, and Hamlet is on the other. So endless indulgence in yeah. endless indulgence in immediate thoughtless contact. Woo! Right? That's one side. No self-regulation. Hamlet is all self-regulation. It's the Protestant hell. Uh, all, always winter, never Christmas, endless cogitation, no action, until finally it breaks through. That's where it gets satisfying, but then everybody dies. So um, yeah, the Lion King has obviously a happier ending. Yeah, yeah. So, so you mentioned um, the the confrontation has to be voluntary in some way, shape, or form. So, when the hero does go down into the underworld, so so Simba goes Rafiki, the self archetype, I believe. But clarify mm -hmm. what the self is because that is impossible to grasp for me. Um, but then, yeah, so Rafiki. Okay, okay. <laughs> so Rafiki leads Simba down into his underworld, and this is like his spiritual labyrinth. Let's say just for clarity. Um, mm -hmm. And then he has a confrontation with Rafiki where he's questioning everything and he says, um, why has this happened to me? My father said he'd be there for me and all of this kind of thing. So it goes from the shadow, the confrontation with the shadow, which I don't, I think it starts like that. And then it, it vacillates between him seeing visions of his dad in the sky saying, um, you said you'd always be there for me. And then Rafiki saying, don't you realize it, it's you all along? He makes him look into the pool and he clears the ripples and he says a clear mind makes you realize that you were the transcendent all along. Don't you see? Don't you see? And that's what makes him mm -hmm. like the the grand shaman. Um, mm -hmm. So I was thinking that because that seems to me to be the most sophisticated form of resurrection or revivification from the underworld because the, the superficial one you see in some Disney movies is, oh, the hero's fucked and then he gets some like fairy godmother gives him an object and he's like, Oh, I've got this object now. I'm fine. And that's the end of that. He's back up. Mm -hmm. The second one would be a confrontation with the anima who makes him realize he's not all he could be. I think that's a bit more um, nuanced. And then the third one is this apotheosis where the hero is just completely, it's the, it's the Jungian shedding, right? It's the complete death rebirth. So, do you have any thoughts thoughts on that? Is, would 
the confrontation with the shadow versus the self archetype versus God itself? How far are those two from each other? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very cool read. Uh, now I need to rewatch The Lion King and apparently lost in translation, um, which I haven't seen in a while either. Um, yeah, no, that's a very interesting read. I, yeah, I mean, if we're sort of fitting this to the concept of individuation in some way, shape, or form, right? The or if we're fitting it maybe to the the Campbellian, you know, hero's journey, that that moment of recognition is uh, is the atonement with the father, right? So there's there's a specific kind of stage which is the atonement or the at one ment with the father, right? And that atonement or at one ment with the father is what we get in the pool, this sort of reflective sense of identity. No, you haven't been abandoned, you instantiate in some way. Um, I mean, it's funny, you were saying, obviously, that it's like the self is hard to wrap your head around. It's like, yes, uh, that's because you're in it. It's not in you. Um, so you're never going to wrap your head around it. Never. Um, it's, it's sort of categorically, I think, impossible. It's like trying to squeeze an elephant into a shoebox. Um, you can get bits of it in there, um, and then you can describe those bits, right? Like the blind men exploring the elephant, but you're, yeah. you know, getting a whole sense of it. You know, it it necessarily sort of exceeds what your consciousness can handle, both in terms of complexity, sophistication, bandwidth, symbolic density, right? However, yeah, I mean, shadow work, shadow work is the entry point for all of this stuff because, in a way, it's easy. I mean, your shadow, it's not easy, it's hard and inexhaustible, but it's accessible to you. Your shadow is literally like your shadow. I mean, it's attached to your feet. So even if you don't go looking for it, right? What, say we're talking about darkness of the soul. Even if you don't go looking for it, we've all had those 2.30 in the morning moments where we look into the mirror and are suddenly confronted with the extent to which we're pieces of shit. Right. Like all the things you've done wrong, baby, because uh, you have you've hurt people and you've you've violated your own sense of self or you've you know, like that catches up with you. That shadow aspect of things is always there. And that's leaving aside the golden shadow. Right. The stuff that you left behind unnecessarily, you know, you used to draw when you were a kid until somebody came along and crumbled up your drawing and said, this is a waste of your time. You're never going to make any money doing this. And then, right, you throw it into the bin uh, along with all your childish things and thereby lose this wellspring of something that was quite essential to you, right? The shadow is always kind of around to recover stuff from. When you're dealing with the more complex ranges of things, right, the shadow, ultimately speaking, has a lot to do with your relationship with, you know, your own othering. Anima or animus, all that contrasexual soul stuff is, of course, complicated because it's a, it's a worldly drive, that's looking to animate things and pull you forward, right? It, it's part of relationship and therefore it's always very slippery. You know, where do those projections occur? Well, they very often occur romantically and parentally and those are doozies. You can spend a lot of time working on your romantic and parental projections. Yeah, right? yeah. And to the extent that they're different. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. To the extent that they're different, they typically are over time. Um, but nevertheless, they're sort of interconnected and quite complicated. Um, when you start getting into the range of the self, you're moving beyond, in some ways, the personal. So it's a touch point. Um, sometimes I use the metaphor of the, the tree of life in Kabbalah, um, where the solar sphere of, of Tifereth 
is the highest sphere of sort of personal consciousness. But really what it is, is this overlapping Venn diagram, really, between the Godhead and the personal. That's why it's often associated with dying and resurrecting gods, right? Um, you know, a, a Christ or Osiris or Mithras or whatever happens to be in your worship space. But that particular intersection, right, the highest point of the personal and the beginning of the transpersonal, that's where the stuff around the self begins. It, but it is a yeah. gateway in some sense to higher ranges that are increasingly outside of easy understanding, you know, simple symbolic comprehension. Um, and that's why, you know, as Jung puts it, it doesn't really matter whether or not epistemologically speaking, you can establish that it's God. It merely matters that observably the phenomena which you experience when you start to get into those states have religious and mystical symbolism, and they require you to interact with them in that way. Right? That's the language that you can communicate with. And so you can either get a handle on that language or not, but if you don't, you are excluding an enormous part of your sort of inner landscape from your projections, but you're never going to wrestle it fully to ground. So even the kind of at one moment with the father and the way that you're talking about in The Lion King, that's important. But that's sort of at the at the upper range. Uh, in a way, the the real binding of the self in that film is the, I think, is the further motion where it's not just that Simba becomes unitive with his father, but that he becomes unitive with the opening frames of all of this, all you see before you is yours. It's the unitive idea of the world. And that's a fairly classic concept that we see in kingship, generally speaking. Kings as social figures are places where we project our unitive relationship to the world and the land rather than taking it up ourselves, right? That's why, you know, when King Arthur is wounded, right? We get, we get the kind of Fisher King thing, the land becomes barren and so on and so forth, the wasteland. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, we have a tendency to project that into the historical, which I suspect is why people are so interested in the British Royals still, um, is that they're doing this thing. So they're doing this pantomime for us where they hold our projections, right? Because otherwise, who cares? Um, <laughs> uh, what we're not doing is identifying those archetypal elements within ourselves, that there is a sense in which all of us, all you see here is yours, right? Like, yeah, of course it is, right? It's also yeah, other yeah. people's, which is the kicker. Yeah, but it's not necessarily zero sum, right? In fact, it's definitely not. So um, that's interesting. You say where the personal consciousness at the, the top of that, where that ends and the transpersonal begins, that's, that's the realm we're talking about when it comes to the self. And that's probably why it's an easy point to say it's Rafiki and not Mufasa because Mufasa is the mm -hmm. apex is the is the top of the hierarchy and then Rafiki is that which regulates and governs that even and I don't know what mm -hmm. the verb would be but you know that it's something that's transcendent of the top of whatever we're talking about and um yeah I mean Rafiki's a kind of shaman figure he's got a trickster vibe He's, he's actually um, outside space time, right? Like me and Sasha were talking about this the other day. The only person who can see him is Simba. He actually has very few scenes in the entire movie. He only appears to Simba when it, it is absolutely necessary. It's like this is some actual manifestation thing going on. 
Shit. Yeah. Are you gonna now? I'm gonna have to go watch. I'm gonna have to sit and watch The Lion King and check for Tyler Durden freeze frames. Wait a second. It's true. Nobody ever does talk to Tyler Durden. Um, <laughs> he's like he's painting his he's painting his thing on the trees. But that all the scenes with him are him like the ma- the main guy in the frame, and there's no side characters except when he's talking to Simba and he's like whipping him with a stick, saying, "See, the past hurts." You know, like it's all very huh. cryptic and oracle-y, but that's so okay. interesting to me. I, I clearly I have to I got to go rewatch this film. I this will this will yeah. supplement because I've been uh, harping on to people about the need to watch Dumbo as a shamanic initiation film. Um, so I can maybe okay. do the Dumbo Lion King shamanic initiation double feature, and then <laughs> I'll, the I'll roll around to, to Lost in Translation. Uh, <laughs> I, it never occurred to me until this conversation, but my my favorite film, um, yeah, my favorite film is. Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. And I love it because I like horror movies and I think it's basically a perfect horror movie. It's the the last perfect pre-digital practical effects horror movie. But what never occurred to me until just now, so thanks, uh, is it's a movie about a shapeshifter. So all of my preoccupation with shapeshifting, it had never occurred to me in all this time that my preoccupation with shapeshifting uh, that's what that film is about. I, I picked it up. My my second favorite film in that sense is um, David Cronenberg's version of The Fly. And that film I understood years ago is an alchemical allegory, whether or not that's what Cronenberg interpreted. No, I think famous, famously so. Yeah. So I, I've yeah. never heard Cronenberg actually talk about that, although maybe I've just missed the interview. But like, yeah, it seems very obviously, right? It's uh you know, creating the divine hermaphrodite, but with a little bit of contamination in the alembic. <laughs> yeah. Turns out you, right? And then this idea of multiple purification and the, whatever, the plasma pool. So anyway, now I got to go watch Lion King. Okay, yeah. we have to wrap up can fairly you, shortly because I have a four, but... Yeah, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Session, can you believe we had an influence on Anderson? Like, he's going to watch something because of us. <laughs> But this is this is the thing though because we have com- we might have completely misinterpreted the Lion King, but who cares? We put it no. out there now. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think so. So let's just I'll say this because I don't want to ask quick about Lost in Translation. But th- this this prop of misinterpretation is a thing that um, it's I get a bit of a, a bug in my bonnet. Is that an expression? Anyway, whatever. Because um, people have this idea of right and wrong interpretations. That's not how analogical thought works. We we keep sticking on this. We want the is in a metaphor to be an equal sign, and it isn't, right? We want it to be like maths, you know, proof, right? Proof is for maths. When we're talking about interpretation, analogical interpretation, there's no such thing as the right answer. There are just answers of varying plausibility by context. This is where everybody gets hitched up when you do poetry in class. Because they're like, oh, what's the meaning? It's like, no, that's not how this works. You just make a pitch. So you just made a very plausible pitch, um, a plausible enough pitch that, yeah, absolutely, I'm going to go, I'm going to go watch it, and I'm going to go watch it in those terms. Uh, so I don't think it, it's the case okay. that you can be radically off base. You've just foregrounded an aspect that I had never considered, which is great. Um, that's cool. Okay, give me awesome. the quick pitch. Yeah. Why lost in translation? Oh no, Lost in Translation, way less epic than what Sid just said. I, I yeah, can't yeah, put I linguistics know, but... to it. I just uh I just really enjoyed it. I think that was just one of those movies that I watched at the right time in my life. 
to make it a great movie. It's like um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I would never watch it again, but I caught it at the right time. So right. Um, it's one of those things. Not like not uh, as deep as The Lion King, or maybe it is if I go and try to find maybe one. It is. But, uh, Just but, yeah. have to perfect your pitch on that. Eh? But the, yeah, that, that, the, the, the biggest latest realization that I've made while reading, the, while reading The Republic and Sid telling me that Rafiki doesn't actually exist is mm. realizing that Socrates doesn't actually exist. He's not a real person. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that's my real thing now. He's a useful fiction. <laughs> he, he's he's uh, not real. Like, there's no proof of him. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, nobody is real. We're all useful fictions. So he doesn't stand apart in that way. And to be honest, we've only been interacting with the characters for quite some time anyway. Uh, it just makes, it's it's a funny idea to treat, it's a very funny idea to treat Socrates as an offstage, quasi-unreliable narrator through plato yeah Yeah, i like that that's funny (laughs) Um, okay yeah we'll we'll wrap up soon i had i had a few other things uh joseph campbell and nietzsche wise but we'll we'll do the ending now um sure and for what what it's worth uh, this was a very interesting conversation i'm more than happy to to talk again um if if you guys want to touch base and talk again super interesting and i mean you can only ever scrape the surface oh yeah, yeah yeah 100%. 100%. Yeah, this has been something we've really been looking forward to, and it's definitely lived up as well. You, I think you, if you're up for it, Anderson, you should be one of the recurring guests. As we grow our podcast, you're the guy. You're our guy. <laughs> uh, we can talk about that. Uh, the, the problem with that is always scheduling. Uh, and yeah, yeah. I, I keep flirting with the idea of taking on one of these uh, polyphasic sleep schedules you know, like uh, Thomas Edison, the Uberman sleep schedule where you only sleep like uh, three hours a day or something. But <clears throat> apparently the first two weeks of it are just living hell. So as yet, there are a limited yeah. number of hours in the day. Um, but yeah, I would be happy to talk again. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, just to you. end, end off, um, we have a quick rapid fire thing. First thing that comes to your mind, game. Um, are you ready? Sure. Okay. Best guitarist. Oh. Fuck. Um, Hendrix. Hey, I agree. That's the, that's the right answer. There is no multiple interpretations there. That is the one right answer. Um, prostitution. Is there a question there? No, just first word that comes to mind. <laughs> oh, prostitution. Uh, first word that comes to mind. Unfairly stigmatized? Mm, okay. Alistair Crowley. Mm, brilliant asshole. <laughs> those those seem to be necessary, eh? Those two words going together. <laughs> yeah. We don't have a single word for that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, what's I've got? Aristotle. Single word? First word <laughs> or two, whatever. Confabulist. What was that? Confabulist. I, I don't know. Confabulist. Yeah. Uh, everybody always talks about Aristotle as, uh, you know, this sort of proto-scientific observer guy. But a lot of the time he's not observing things. For instance, his passage on how only hedgehogs and humans have sex face to face because hedgehogs would stab <laughs> each other to death. That shit's just made up. That's not how hedgehogs have sex. <laughs> he just made it up. He's a confabulist. Okay, but he was the okay. best looking philosopher from the pictures that oh, I saw. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, so no, he, he's Pythagoras. No. Pythagoras. Okay, I've got to have a look at Pythagoras. Yeah, Star Pythagoras. Wars, then Pythagoras. Very, very tall, 
extremely well-dressed, brilliant, and with uh, a yeah. golden thigh. People talked about his golden thigh. Okay, okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Pythagoras. Pythagoras. Okay. All right. Uh, a couple more. The Wizard of Oz. Oh, um, profound. Mexican food. Delightful. The gold standard. Uh, ooh. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I'm not allowed to ask for further interpretation, whether you're talking about monetary policy or yeah, some yeah, kind of general economic. idea. Okay, yeah, so we're talking about the economic policy. Um, yeah. um, I, mythically fanciful? Wow. Okay. Poker. <laughs> um, poker. I don't know. Card games don't interest me. Uh, mm. Bluffing. Bluffing. Same. And last one, God. Oh. Very mysterious. That's the, that's the answer. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure, Anderson and Session. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. Good to, to meet both of you and to talk. And yeah, if we yeah. can find a time, I'm certainly happy to talk about stuff again. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thanks a lot, Anderson, for joining us. It was a yeah, pleasure thank from you. our end as well. Yeah, terrific. Yeah. Catch all the viewers next episode. Goodbye.